Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us today for this Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Weldview Management Best Practices, sponsored by Miller. We're going to give our audience just a moment to settle in today, and we'll begin the presentation in about 90 seconds. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Weld Fume Management Best Practices, Understanding Key Steps and Recommendations to Keep Your Weld Environment Clean and Compliant, sponsored by Miller. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an Associate Editor at Safety and Health. I'll be your moderator for today's event. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, just click the Q&A button, which is located at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. You may ask your question at any time at all during the presentation. You do not have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's sponsor. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenters. With us today are Bert Schiller, Susan Fiore, Karina Dyer, and Shekinah Fisher. Bert is an industrial hygienist with more than 35 years of experience in a wide variety of industries. He has worked for Michigan OSHA and is currently teaching at the University of Michigan. Susan is an advanced applications manager with Hobart Brothers Welding. She's a materials engineer with 30 plus years of experience in the industry, and she's also a fellow of the American Welding Society. Karina serves as a product manager for the welding safety and health team at Miller. She works directly with welders and Miller engineers to identify end user needs and develop innovative respiratory products. Shekinah is a welding solutions safety manager at Miller. She works with industrial customers and educational facilities to address welding fume issues and to protect their workers and the environment. 
Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation today. And Bert, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll start with a disclaimer. Um, every welding environment is different and needs to be evaluated by a qualified industrial hygienist to determine the appropriate course of action for fume controls. This presentation is intended for awareness and introductory purposes only and should not be used to replace professional consultation or a complete review of the owner's manual for any of the equipment discussed. Next slide, please. So let's take an overview of weld fume control. We're gonna talk about the type of welding processes. Susan and the next speaker is gonna go into a little more detail on this because each type of welding process, whether it be subarc, MIG, or TIG, is gonna give off different levels of fume. The base metal and the filler metals used in the welding electrode are also important. I'm gonna talk more about this in the next couple of slides. Obviously, the location is different. If you're welding outdoors, such as on a pipeline and there's a strong breeze, there's gonna be less chance for fume inhalation. On the other hand, if you're welding indoors, especially in an enclosed space, the chances for overexposure to weld fumes increase. The welder's work practices are also important. Does he lean over the metal? Is he nearsighted? Believe it or not, that's important because it would determine how close he might be getting to the weld face. Is there any air movement, especially ventilation controls that might be present? These are all important factors which can impact the exposure levels. Next. The base metals. It's important to know whether you're welding on aluminum, mild steel, or stainless steel. Why is stainless steel important? Well, stainless steel contains chromium. Chromium in stainless steel is in the trivalent or plus three state. But due to the action of the welding, and the heat generated, that trivalent chromium can shift into hexavalent chrome, chrome six, which is extremely reactive, especially to lung tissue. So if you're welding on stainless steel and you're gonna, we're gonna talk about hex chrome in a minute, it's extremely important to have controls in place. The different type of filler metals in the electrode are also important, nickel, copper, obviously iron, but also manganese, which we're gonna discuss more in a minute. Next. So let's identify the different issues. How, how much welding is being done? Again, if it's maintenance welding where it's a few minutes a day, it's not gonna be that much of a problem. Most of the exposure limits, which we're gonna talk about are based on an eight hour average exposure. So how long a person welds is extremely important. Next, what type of welding is being done? As I said, this is important. Flux core, MIG, TIG, these all give off different amounts of fume. Subarc welding, another example, gives off very little fume and is quite safe. Next, what is the base metal? I've already mentioned stainless steel is important. Uh, if it's mild steel, we're mostly worried about iron. If it's galvanized, there might be zinc involved. So the base metals are important. 
where is the welding being conducted? Again, is it in a well-ventilated area with local exhaust ventilation, or is it in a restricted or confined space? These factors are extremely important. Next. When are there changes that impact your environment? Uh, has the workplace been reconfigured? Is there new equipment? Is it a new type of application? Increased production, again, going back to the top, how much welding is being done is extremely important. So all of these five factors are gonna influence the amount of fume generated. Next. OSHA has their permissible exposure limits. They enforce these uh, limits for different airborne concentrations of chemical substances. I've already mentioned hexavalent chromium. In 2006, OSHA issued its standard for exposure to hex chrome, setting a permissible exposure limit of five micrograms. Let me emphasize that again, that little UG is micrograms, that's a thousand less than milligrams per cubic meter. Most exposure limits like manganese below are expressed in milligrams per cubic meter. Hexavalent chrome is five micrograms per cubic meter. That's a thousand times lower than the limit for manganese. They've also set an action level of 2.5. It's typical for OSHA to set an action level of 50% of the PEL if you're above the action level, you have to take certain administrative controls, such as medical surveillance, respiratory protection, training, et cetera. Now I mentioned manganese has an OSHA PEL of five milligrams per cubic meter. That is a ceiling limit, which means it should never be exceeded for any length of time. But now let's look at the TLVs, next. ACGIH is not a governmental body, it's a professional organization. It actually predates OSHA by a number of years. This was the first body anywhere in the world that has issued occupational exposure limits. They're called threshold limit values on the belief that there's a threshold uh, up to which people can be exposed with no adverse health effects. However, once you're past that threshold, adverse health effects can be adopted. So I've already mentioned hexchrome and manganese. Let's see what the TLVs are for these. In 2018, ACGIH adopted a new TLV for hexchrome of 0 0.0002 milligrams. Now, if we convert back to micrograms, that would be 0 0.2 micrograms. So that's 25 times lower than the PEL for hex chrome. It's very restrictive, very low. It doesn't take much fume at all to exceed that exposure limit. The TLV for manganese is 0 0.02 milligrams per cubic meter. And if you do the math, that's 250 times lower or more restrictive than the OSHA limit. So nobody really pays much attention to the OSHA limit for manganese, all the attention is on the ACGIH TLV. Next. So how do you get an exposure assessment? How do you get somebody to look at all these varying factors? Well, expect to contact a qualified safety and health professional to assess your facility. If at all possible, use a certified industrial hygienist. 
That's a CIH certified by the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. To find a CIH, you can uh, ask your corporate office if they have one on staff. You can talk to your insurance broker or underwriter, or you can look at the consultants listing from AIHA. I believe next we have a poll question. Uh, you can take a few minutes or a minute here to answer this Answer, when was air monitoring for well flume last conducted at your worst place? Within the last year, within the last two years, you're not sure, or maybe it's not applicable. Take some time to answer that. And then in a, in a 30 seconds or 60 seconds, you'll see the range of answers pop up from the poll question. Ah, we have some answers already. Well, that's a pretty good percentage of you, 21% within the last year and another 12% within the last two years. Uh, uh, almost a third of you are uncertain and another third uh, not sure or it's not applicable. Let me make the point, I did work in the insurance industry for a dozen years and a workers comp told me once that any data more than two years old is not as valid. It's like these vaccine shots. They lose their potency over time. So if you haven't had any fume exposure data within the last couple of years, it might be time to have another study done. Next slide, please. The OSHA hierarchy of controls. Next. There's a hierarchy of controls, uh, whereas uh, per process modification or substitution is the best way to control the process. I think I mentioned subarc welding, for example, which gives very little or no fume, is a much better way to weld than uh, regular uh, standard MIG welding. The second best control are engineering controls, such as local exhaust ventilation. Then as we go lower on the, on the hierarchy, we see work practice controls, such as training and education. And last is personal protective equipment, such as respiratory protection. And at this point, I'm gonna hand it off to Susan, who's gonna take it from here. Susan? Thank you, Bert. Again, this is Susan Fiore and I'm going to be talking about process modification and substitution. Next slide. Process modification and substitution is the first step in the hierarchy of controls. It is also the most effective since it re removes or reduces the danger to the environment, thereby protecting not only the welder, but also those workers in the surrounding area. The first option for process modification is to eliminate welding. This is generally not a feasible solution, and since this is a, a welding safety presentation, I'm not really gonna go into that. Other options include modifying the welding process, which could include changes to the process itself, as well as changes to the welding parameters. Automation and or isolation are other process modifications that can help to reduce exposure to welding fumes. Changes to the materials, including changes to the filler metals, the shielding gas, and the base material, or another way to reduce welding fume exposures. 
Keep in mind though, that these sorts of changes may require you to recertify your welding procedures. Next slide. This slide shows how changing the welding process, and in some cases, the shielding gas, can help to reduce the amount of fume that is generated. Processes such as gas tungsten arc welding, and as Bert mentioned, submerged arc welding, tend to be very low in terms of fume generation. Gas tungsten arc welding, or TIG welding, is done under inert gas shielding, and the filler metal is not part of the welding circuit, which leads to very low levels of fume generation. Unfortunately, gas tungsten arc welding is also very low deposition and requires a high degree of welder skill. In submerged arc welding, a blanket of flux covers the welding arc and acts to capture the fume before it can escape to the surrounding environment. However, submerged arc welding is limited to use in the flat and horizontal position and may require a large investment in equipment. Solid wire gas melt, not yet, thank you. Uh, solid, solid wire gas metal arc welding tends to be relatively low fuming, especially if pulse transfer is used with high argon shielding gas mixtures. I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. There are a variety of flux and metal cord welding products, some of which are designed specifically to be low fuming, and others which may target specific elements in the fume, such as manganese or hexavalent chromium. The amount of fume generated in the flux cord arc welding process will vary greatly depending on the specific type of consumable that is used. Rutile based, such as the T1 types of wires, are relatively low fuming, whereas basic or T5 types and self-shielded wires tend to be much higher in fume generation. Shielded metal arc welding or stick welding has a relatively low fume generation, a relatively low rate of fume generation. However, if you consider how much fume is generated as a percentage of electrode consumed, it actually produces more fume per pound of deposit than many of the other processes. Next slide. Changing to a less active shielding gas is one of the most effective ways to reduce welding fume generation. This slide shows the effect of shielding gas on fume generation rate for gas metal arc welding. The results are similar for flux cord arc welding. As you can see from the graph, as the amount of CO2 and or oxygen in the shielding gas is reduced, there is a dramatic decrease in the amount of fume that is generated. It may be possible to reduce the amount of fume by as much as 80% simply by changing the shielding gas. Next slide. Another option for reducing worker exposure to hazardous chemicals is to choose a filler metal that targets specific components of the fume. For example, there are a number of products on the market that are designed to limit exposure to manganese. These products are available in a wide variety of sizes and a full range of compositions for both mild and low alloy steel. There are designs for CO2 shielding as well as argon CO2 mixtures, and there are products for both flux cord and metal cord welding. This graphic gives a comparison of manganese exposure using a low manganese flux cord wire as compared with a traditional flux cord wire. Reductions in manganese exposure, exposures of 50% or more are possible with these low manganese filler wires. You should note that this particular test was done in our test lab under controlled conditions. It is highly recommended that you do exposure testing in your own facility to verify the results due to the large number of variables that can affect fume exposures. As I think Bert mentioned some of these, but these would include variables 
such as the specific welders and how they position themselves relative to the fume plume, the welding parameters, the room dimensions, local exhaust ventilation, the number of welding operations, and other factors. And while these products are designed to target specific components of the fume, they're not necessarily designed to produce lower overall fume levels. Contact your welding supplier for more information. Next slide. As I mentioned earlier, the type of weld metal transfer can have a significant impact on the generation of welding fume. Modified short-circuiting transfer provides a more stable arc than conventional short-circuiting transfer, which can help to reduce fumes. It's also been found that switching from conventional spray transfer to pulse transfer in gas metal arc welding can significantly reduce welding fume. Keep in mind though, that a simple change to pulse may not result in the expected decrease in fume generation. You may need to optimize the welding parameters to get the desired results. You should contact your welding supplier if you need assistance. And note that these are, these do, and note that these do not, that we do not typically see a similar reduction in fume when we use pulse transfer with flux and metal cord wires. Next slide. In summary, there are many advantages to lowering welding fume generation by modifying or changing the welding process. The greatest being that it helps to protect the welder as well as those working in the surrounding area. It can also be, be a way to target specific welding constituents such as manganese. And finally, these types of changes are generally relatively simple to implement. Next. Oh, not yet. <laughs> Some of these disadvantages, some of the disadvantages of modifying the welding process include the possi possible need to invest in new equipment, as well as the need for additional training or, or requalification. You should keep in mind that not all processes will work in all situations. Things to consider include the deposition rate, positional capabilities, and mechanical property requirements. Finally, if you're considering switching, sh switching shielding gas, keep in mind that argon-based Gas mixtures are typically more expensive than CO2. Next. I'll now turn the presentation over to Shekinah, who will be talking about the next tier on the hierarchy of controls, which are engineering controls. Shekinah. Thank you, Sue. Next slide, please. So I'm here to chat with you about engineering controls, which is the second most effective level of control recommended by OSHA. Engineering controls requires placing a barrier between the weld operator and the hazard. They are broken down into three types, local exhaust, process enclosure, and general ventilation. Local exhaust, which can also be referred to as source capture, removes the fume at the source before it reaches the operator's breathing zone. Now this can be done with extraction arms, backdraft hoods, downdraft tables, or fume guns. There's also a new technology called zone flow that creates a larger capture zone. The benefit of this technology is productivity and also safety. With a larger capture zone, the arm will not need to be moved as often to ensure it's over the weld, which will help keep the operator more productive because they can set the arm at the end of their workpiece and focus on welding and will also keep them and really anyone else in the facility safer because they're more apt to using it 
meaning more of that weld fume is being captured. Process enclosures create a barrier between the operator and the process and is mainly seen in automation cells. General ventilation, HVAC, is moving large quantities of air to dilute or filter based on the air exchange schedule. Trying to figure out which solution is best for your facility really just depends on your application. One thing I would always consider though is if there is a weld operator involved, capturing that weld fume before it crosses their breathing zone is ultimately going to keep them safer. Let's go ahead and move on to fume guns, which would be considered source capture. Now with fume guns, you can capture the fume right at the source. And as I just mentioned, this is one of the best ways of capturing weld fume. Fume guns work best for doing in position welding and is nice because the welder will not have to move an arm around from the fume extractor. But something to think about is the ergonomics of the gun. Typically, these guns are going to be heavier and a bit bulky, which can create an issue with user acceptance. Also, if you are doing any sort of out of position welding and not just welding in a straight line, the effectiveness of how much weld fume is being captured can be significantly less. While a fume gun can be ideal for tight or confined spaces, I would definitely take into consideration what I just mentioned about the ergonomics of the gun and out of position welding. Let's go ahead and move on to other source capture solutions. There are portable, mobile, stationary, and centralized systems. The portable units are small and are typically used for maintenance and repair or light duty welding and they are not meant to be run for eight hours a day. They're easy to move around your shop and get into tight areas and it's typically used with a small vacuum hose that is designed for weld fume and will be connected to either a flex nozzle or fume gun. Now, mobile, stationary, and centralized systems are all used for heavy welding and are intended to be used for eight hours a day. Mobile units are typically seen in facilities with an open bay or open floors and are good for moving from booth to booth. Let's say you have three booths but are only welding in one booth at a time. With the mobile unit, you have the flexibility to move it around and capture weld fume where needed. Well, let's say you don't have the floor space or maybe you don't need the option of moving from booth to booth and is necessary to always have fume extraction in the weld cell, then you can look into stationary units that can be mounted on a wall, pedestal, or ceiling. Typically, you're going to have the option of having one to two arms on these systems. Now, if you are looking at multiple weld booths, you may want to consider a centralized system. Typically, it's recommended to look into centralized when you have six or more booths needing fume extraction. With a centralized system, there will be an arm or hood placed in the welding station that'll be connected to ductwork and the ductwork is connected to the collector where it's pulling in the weld fume. You have the option of placing the collector either indoors or outdoors, depending on how much floor space there is. All right, let's go ahead and move on to general ventilation. 
with general ventilation, which is also known as ambient or push-pull systems, they are effective in moving or diluting large quantities of air. This works for cleaning up the facility, but it does not capture the weld fume at the source, meaning the weld fume may be going across the welder's breathing zone. Because of this, it may be necessary to look into other means of protection to protect the welder from breathing in the weld fume. Next, we are going to chat about process enclosures. Another great way to capture weld fume is process enclosures. Typically, this is using a hood to stop the fume from migrating into other areas of the shop. Now, these can be put over automation cells or by blocking off an area in the facility with weld curtains around the hood to help contain the weld fume. Let's go ahead and move on to things that can impact the fume extractor performance. When looking at fume extraction, you wanna look at each location individually. And I don't just mean the entire shop, you wanna look at each welder individually. There are many factors to consider when looking at fume extraction for the welder. One being work environment. Doors and fans can affect the weld fume travel and you'll want to limit as much air movement as possible. It's also necessary to ensure you are placing the arm in the proper position. You want the arm position to be pulling fume away from the welder and not across their breathing zone. Depending on the size of the weld joint, you may need to position the arm in multiple positions as you go about welding. Also, consider the mobility of the welder. If they are moving around the shop, they may need a mobile cart. If they are over a workbench, then you can look into a stationary unit. It really just depends on how the welder moves around in their area. Other equipment, such as cranes and other elements of the manufacturing process, can limit the type of fume extractor that can be used. So again, when assessing your environment for fume extraction, it's important to look at all areas of the facility and the welder to ensure you are thinking about anything that could affect the capture of the weld fume. Now we are going to move on to the filters. Another item to consider when looking at fume extraction is what type of filters are in the unit. Typically, there are two types of filters and these are the two we'll be discussing today. One being the disposable filter and the other being self-cleaning. Disposable filters are typically used for light applications with low on art time where there is not a lot of welding taking place. Well, let's chat about self-cleaning filters. Self-cleaning filters are more for heavy applications and you can get as much as eight times the filter life with a self-cleaning unit. When I mention self-cleaning, it's not the filter that is different. The actual unit has a cleaning mechanism inside of it. It'll be hooked to compressed air and has a pulsing mechanism where the air will knock the larger particulate off the filter into a tray at the bottom of the unit. What this does is prolongs the life of the filter. Normally, it's recommended that within an eight-hour shift or more, you should use the self-cleaning because while it might be a larger upfront cost, 
your ROI will be better in the end because you're saving money from the cost of the filters. Now let's talk about what can impact the life of the filters. A few things that can affect the life of the filter are the quantity of fume, the type of fume, cleanliness of parts, hours of operation, cleaning cycles of filters, and moisture content. Different types of weld processes generate different levels of weld fume and weld fume particulate. TIG, MIG, and stick welding are all different. There is more fume generated while stick welding than there would be with TIG, and this means there is the potential of filling up the filter media quicker. Several items come into play when looking at the life of the filter. Moisture content is something that can greatly affect the life of the filter. Any oils, anti-spatter, rust inhibitors, or high humidity can affect the filter life by up to 50%, depending on the amount of oil or moisture that is present. Let's go ahead and move on and review the advantages of engineering controls. Some of the advantages of engineering controls are capturing the weld fume before it reaches the welder's breathing zone. This is key because it's ensuring the safety of the welder and keeping them from breathing in the weld fume particulate. Another advantage is an improved workplace environment. With a shortage of welders, having a clean shop will retain and attract new welders. There are also solutions for almost any application. So once your facility has been assessed, you'll know which solution best meets your needs. Also, as I mentioned earlier, that new technology called zone flow can increase the weld fume capture zone, which could mean the welder will be more accepting of using the fume extraction, keeping them safer and also more productive. Now let's chat about some key considerations of engineering controls. One of them being space constraints. There may need to be physical changes made to a facility. Let's say you are looking at a centralized system. There may be ductwork and also will need to find space for the collector that could be indoors or outdoors. If mounting a stationary unit on the wall, you'll need to make room for the unit also, if using the self-cleaning system, it will need to be connected to compressed air. Another key consideration is productivity, which can be affected if the solution requires constant arm interaction. You want to make sure the arm is positioned correctly to capture all the weld fumes. So if the welder is doing multiple welds, they may need to continuously reposition the arm. Another item would be consumable costs with the main product being filters. This is why it's important to ensure you are using the best solution for your environment. If you're in an environment with heavy welding, having a self-cleaning unit will prolong the life of the filter and cut down on your consumable cost. All right, let's go ahead and move on to work practice controls. Now I'm going to walk you through the third step of the OSHA hierarchy of controls, which is work practice controls. This step does not remove the hazard, but includes general workplace and operation specific rules that'll limit or prevent exposure. One of the main items is body positioning and 
This can be as simple as, is my welder sticking their head directly in front of all the fume? If so, the question now is, are there better ergonomics we can explore? Can I help the welder better position themselves so the weld fume is not going directly into their breathing zone? Proper body positioning will also increase the welder's visibility, helping them have better welds. It's important that the welder has visibility enhancements to ensure the welder has a clear visual of the puddle and is not having to strain their eyes. I think we can all agree that the better we can see in any situation, the better off we are. Things that will enhance visibility is ensuring the cover lenses and grinding shields are being replaced when need be. Also, ensure when you are purchasing a lens that it has the best optical clarity available in the market. And for those who are having trouble seeing, there are cheater lenses that can be purchased. Now let's talk about proper training. Proper training of the equipment can reduce spatter, fume generation, overwelding, and even the need for cleanup or rework. If they are properly trained on the materials they're welding on and the equipment, this could limit the amount of welding taking place, which could end up saving money in the long run. A key consideration is that training is essential in any successful workshop. It's important to make sure that all welders are trained properly around the welding process. Now it's time for another poll question. So what is the main reason for possibly not implementing better weld fume protection solutions in your welding environment? Could be not benchmarking current concentration and exposure levels, knowledge of proper mitigation approach, investment in equipment cost, ability to justify ROI, Looks like we got a little selection of some different answers here. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. So some of the advantages to work practice controls is that proper welding technique can lead to less scrap and rework. Training devices can teach the proper body positioning and motor skills that are needed during the welding process. Also, enhanced visibility, as we just spoke about, can lead to higher productivity rates. Better clarity also means the welder won't have to put their face as close to the weld fume, which will give them even more protection overall. I mean, really, that's what all of this is about, right? Protecting the welders. Now let's move on to some key considerations of work practice controls. Now, a couple of key considerations are training devices are an investment, but can save in the long run by helping your welders be more productive and hopefully not have as much rework because they have a better understanding of what needs to be done. 
Another key consideration of work practice controls is they will require a behavior change in the weld environment and also by the welders themselves. Welder acceptance is key to any successful workshop. Many times, if the welder is given the proper equipment and training, they will feel much more successful, which in turn will lead to them being overall more happy. And as we all know, with the shortage of welders, being able to retain and attract new welders is a huge benefit. Now I'm going to turn it over to Karina to chat about personal protective equipment. Thank you, Shekinah. Hi, everyone. We will now review personal protective equipment, which is the fourth tier of OSHA's hierarchy of controls. And specifically, we will review respiratory protective equipment. Personal protective equipment should be used only when other methods of work practice controls, such as the process modification, engineering controls, and work practice controls we have just explored have been evaluated. In many cases, these controls alone cannot reduce the exposure levels to below the occupational exposure level in which respiratory protection is required and is, is essential. In emergency or maintenance and repair situations where the hierarchy of controls can't reduce the exposure levels or during the implementation of such hierarchy of controls, PPE may be used as the first step to reduce the exposure levels. Next, please. Because respirators are designed to create a buffer or a barrier between the potential hazard and the operator, it is imperative and required by OSHA that a respiratory protection be established and practiced. OSHA details the requirements of such program in the Respiratory Protection Standard 29 CFR 190.134. OSHA states, and I'll read this here, a respirator shall be provided to each employee when such equipment is necessary to protect the health of such employee. The employer shall provide the respirators which are applicable and suitable for the purpose intended. The employer shall be responsible for the establishment and maintenance of such respiratory protection program. The program shall cover each employee required by this section to use the respirator. Fundamentally, what this is saying is that the employer must provide the appropriate type of respirator for the work and the work environment. In addition, the employer must establish and maintain a written respiratory protection program. Next, please. OSHA details the requirements of a written respiratory protection program and provides, to, provides tools to, ask, to assist, which can be found in the respiratory protection standard. So establishing a program should not be over challenging. There are two types of respiratory uses within a facility. One is mandatory use, or when the respiratory protection use is required by the facility and the other is a voluntary use where the operators provide their own respirator or the facility provides the respiratory for optional use. When the respirator is mandatory, a written respiratory, as I just mentioned, a written respiratory program must be established, which includes the following. A detailed worksite specific procedure, which outlines what type, when, where, and how the respirator is used. Program evaluations to identify any changes within the work environment 
ductwork procedures, base metals, filler metals, or other key factors that may change the hazards and the exposure levels within the individual work environment. The evaluations should be done frequently to ensure that the current implemented controls remain effective. It is essential a NIOSH-approved respirator is used. Selection of a respirator is determined after evaluation of the work environment hazard and the extent of such hazard. In addition, the program must include training on the hazards and appropriate respiratory use must be completed. Provide operator medical evaluations and fit testing. Medical evaluations identify if the operator is medically able to wear the respirator within the work environment where respiratory protection is required. Generally, the evaluation can be completed using a medical questionnaire form, and if needed, followed up with a medical professional. The employer must provide maintenance, storage, and cleaning of the respirators as well. In addition, work area surveillance is required to ensure proper use of the respirator and safe practices are being followed and a review of the air quality standards must be completed to ensure exposure is below OSHA's permissible exposure limit or the PEL as described earlier. Next, please. Focusing on a voluntary use where the respirator again is supplied either by the employer or the employee and is again voluntary, a medical evaluation as just described is also needed. The employer must also provide, as described earlier, a maintenance and care of such, red, such respirators. In addition, an Appendix D of the OSHA Respiratory Protection Standard must be provided to the operator. Among other key points in the appendix, it identifies the need to re read and review and follow all of the instructions and warnings that the respirator may have. Take into consideration this does not require, um, this is not required for dust masks or use of standard cloth masks made more popular during the recent pandemic. Next, please. When it comes to respiratory protection, there are two key terms to understand. First is APF or assigned protection factor. The APF is identified as the number and as a number and is defined the level of protection the respirator is expected to provide the operator. So the higher the number, the higher the protection level. As an example, an assigned protection factor of 10 means that no more than one-tenth of the contaminants to which the operator is exposed leaks into the mask. An APF of 100 means only 1% of leakage. The goal per OSHA is to make sure that the exposure inside the mask does not get above the OSHA PEL. Second is the maximum use concentration or MUC, which identifies the upper limit or maximum atmospheric concentration of hazard of which the operator can be expected to be protected when wearing a respirator. To understand the MUC, we use some math. We multiply the APF, or the assigned protection factor, specified by the respirator by the OSHA permissible exposure limit, 
where air sampling of the work environment where the hazard exists, you will then understand if you are below the calculated MUC. Next. There are different types of air purifying respirators. And even though there are different types, they're all designed to do the same thing, which is protect the user by filtering air through a particulate filter or media. The simplest type is pictured here at the top. It is a disposable paper-like dust mask. These are very light and offer an assigned protection factor or an APF of 10. Followed is a durable, reusable tight-fitting half mask with replaceable filters and offers an APF of 10. Both the half mask and the disposable mask sits tight to the face, creating a seal and does required fit testing, which we'll address in just a little bit. A powered air purifying respirator, also known as a PAPR, pictured here at the very bottom, is considered a loose fitting positive pressure respirator, therefore does not require fit testing. A PAPR uses a belt mounted blower, normally placed in the lower back, that provides filtered ambient air to the operator with, enclosed, with the enclosed welding helmet. PAPRs provide an APF of 25 and often um, in some cases provide an APF of 1,000. Next, please. Another type of respirator is the atmospheric supplying respirator or often refer referenced as SAR or supplied air respirators. This system provides the operator with a grade D breathing air from an air source outside of the immediate work area. The air is supplied via an airline which is connected to an uncontaminated air source. The air is then filtered and monitored to provide that grade D breathing air. These systems generally provide an APF of 25, while some provide an APF of 1,000. Supplied air respirators can also provide a cooler air, providing an air conditioning effect to the operator. Next, please. We mentioned both tight-fitting and loose-fitting respirators, but what does that really mean? A tight-fitting respirator sits tight to the face, forming a complete seal. When wearing a tight-fitting respirator, you do not want anything, including facial hair, either long, short, thick, or thin, to interfere with the seal as it will reduce the protection it provides. Fit testing is required with mandatory use and is done qualitatively, which is a pass-fail, test that relies on the user's senses when a test agent is introduced. If the user doesn't detect any odor or irritant, the test is passed. The quantitative test uses an instrument to measure leakage around the face, resulting in a number, also known as a fit factor. Next, please. A loose-fitting respirator means just that, the respirator inlet covering is designed to form a partial seal rather than a tight seal around the face. With, the type of with this type of respiratory protection, facial hair, hair is acceptable. We are going to pause for a minute for a brief poll. Implementing weld fume protection improvements is a priority for 2022, a high, medium or low? 
All right, so it looks like implementing weld fume protection is appearing to be a overall high priority for 2022, awesome. Delivering filtered breathing air <clears throat> to the user's breathing zone is one advantage of the loose fitting PAPR and SAR systems we just reviewed. Another advantage is they can provide heat stress to the user offering increased comfort and improved productivity, especially during the hot summer months. And due to the natural movement that these systems provide through the head assembly or the welding helmet, such as the systems help alleviate um, safety glasses and helmet fogging as well. Next. When reviewing these systems, some key considerations to keep in mind is that PPE, or in our context, the respiratory protection, it is identified as the last means of protection by OSHA, and therefore you must evaluate all the other OSHA hierarchies of controls first. You will need to create, implement, and practice a written protection program, which we have spoke of earlier. In addition, as with other types of systems, you will incur maintenance or consumable costs to ensure the units remain in good working condition. Another consideration is the burden it may place on the employee to ensure they understand the need for respiratory protection and their cooperation for use is key. We have provided the details of the OSHA hierarchy of controls, and I will now pass the baton to Bert for an overview and summary. So once again, the uh, hierarchy of controls is process modification substitution, followed by engineering controls, work process controls, and lastly, personal protective equipment. Next. So it's not as complicated as people think when, uh, when you have the proper people looking at the problem. If you have a qualified industrial hygienist, he can tell you whether or not you need controls and what type of controls are best suited for your work environment. It's highly important to always consider the comfort of your employees and to be in compliance with any regulations. Some of the benefits of controlling your air quality are reduced indirect costs, such as lowering insurance premiums. I mentioned workers' compensation before, protecting you from OSHA inspections and fine, increasing productivity and your bottom line, and improve recruitment and retention of skilled workers, which is a high priority in these times. I think that's it. I'm gonna turn it back to the moderator uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for a few questions. Well, thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. And thank you to all our speakers for sharing your insights with us today. We really appreciate it. Before we start the Q&A, I want to let everyone know about an evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. And your input is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. Okay, let's get to a few questions here. And I'm going to start with Susan. Uh, Susan, we had a question come in from an audience member uh, you spoke a little bit about different materials, and our attendee asks, what is your recommendation for working with galvanized materials, such as fences? Um, well, you know, galvanized, 
is going to present some of its own issues, you know, in and of itself, because you, you do tend to get a um, high level of uh, zinc uh, uh, coming off as, as the, as the welding operation is, is occurring. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about fences, you're probably looking at, you know, most of the welding being done outdoors. Um, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do, you know, if you've got to weld galvanize as far as changing materials or, or things like that. So it's really going to come down to, um, you know, ventilation and, you know, having the proper ventilation and, you know, in some cases, personal protective equipment. But like I said, if it's being done outdoors, then, you know, it may be less of an issue than if it were being done indoors. So, um, but as far as materials, you know, if it's galvanized, you're, you're kind of stuck with that. So. Great. Well, thank you, Susan. Appreciate that. Uh, the next question we have is for Bert. And Bert, one of our attendees asks, are soldering fumes as potent as welding fumes? And do extraction protocols also apply to soldering? Excellent question. And uh, the short answer is no, not necessarily. For one thing, you really don't get lead fume when you're soldering with the traditional uh, lead-based solder. Lead has a very low melting, melting point, which is why it's ideal, but a very high boiling point. So it does not form a fume under normal uh, conditions. Of course, there's lots of different kinds of soldering. Um, uh, if, if you're using the newer uh, lead-free solders, you have some other metals involved. So you might need local exhaust ventilation if you're soldering all day long. Um, but, but the short answer is with traditional lead-based solder, it's not much of a problem. Great. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. And Karina, well, the next question is going to go to you. Um, we had an attendee who asked, how often should fit testing be performed for tight-fitting respirators? This is a great question. So the First step is obviously if it's a first time user, the fit testing should be completed. And again, facial hair um, of any kind should not be done. I would say if there's a significant change in the you know, weight of the face, we should look at it again. But otherwise, you know, one time should be done assuming you're using the same respirator. Great, thank you for that. And Shekinah, we have a question for you as well. An attendee wants to know, how often uh, does my fume extractor filter need to be replaced? So you'll know when the filter needs to be replaced because most filtration units will have some sort of a differential pressure gauge that shows when the filter is full. Also, if you feel that your suction is not adequate to your needs, it may be time to replace the filter a newer filter is going to have less static pressure and will give you better airflow. Great. Thank you very much. It looks like we have time for one more question today. And Bert, I'm going to ask you a question that came in. Uh, an attendee wants to know, is the EPA involved in air quality considerations? And, and the, this person says, in Arizona, I have to audit our welding fumes outside and open air. Most welding is not uh, regulated by EPA. Most welding fumes can be exhausted directly to the outside without involving federal EPA or uh, state uh, regulations. I'm not familiar with the Arizona statute. Uh, you can have that person submit me a question in writing and I can look into it. 
Great. Thank you for that, Bert. Appreciate it. Folks, it looks like we've unfortunately run out of time today. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but the good news is that then all the unanswered questions uh, will be forwarded along to our speakers today. Again, we also hope you take some time to fill out the uh, survey that we're asking you to, to give your feedback. I'd like to thank our terrific presenters today, Bert Schiller, Susan Fiore, Karina Dyer, and Shakina Fisher, everyone from our sponsor at Miller, and of course, all of you who joined us today. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.